Hello, welcome again to another episode, the part two of my conversation with Kevin McLow. I'm your host, Naziati Muhammad Yaqob. And hi, Kevin, how are you doing? Again. Fine. <laughs> okay, Kevin, you know the drill. So I was just mentioning to you earlier about um, um, community projects, but I'm, I don't want to, you know, the community not going to the community architect thing, but I'm going to go into a much more uh, a belief that people think that students of architecture, for example, should be going for the tourist projects or pro like uh, projects that they think that uh, companies or architecture companies will have to deal with it later. So they they are not really keen because I, I felt that that was the thing that too, um, students to deal with uh, public housing or social housing or markets. And then um, why are these projects important for students of architecture to do uh, in school? And um, this is a clincher. This is the thing that I need from you because um, I probably cannot explain it very well. These projects have enough in them to actually prepare the graduates to do any project in um, any company, big or small. So there are these certain things that could what ha happens when you actually dealing with projects that's, uh, that have people in it, especially urban poverty or issues of disability and so on. Um, go ahead, Kevin. Would you like to comment on this? Thank you. Well, you know, I, I think the problem with um, with education, architectural education in Malaysia, be it a private university, or be it a public one like University of Malaya, is that it isn't that the students, uh, that the teachers and lecturers are trying to push students towards doing, um, towards doing grand projects or like projects that have little to do with actual people. It's that it's that the teachers are, tra are training their the students to be what is called professionally employable. It's the excuse they give it because that is what the lumbaga uh, uh, demands is that the industry is kept alive with students who graduate who are professionally employable. Now, what does it mean to be professionally employable? This is where the little red herring or the little lie begins. We believe that being employable is someone who can respond adeptly, uh, marketably, and iconically to any developer that comes along. Because developers are what push commerce in a city. They're what push, they're the people that push a, a nation's economy. They're the, the individuals that create jobs, right? Unfortunately, developers are also the individuals that create the worst kinds of projects in relation to cities and the environment. If you're actually talking about things that matter, things that do not have anything to do with money, okay? But unfortunately, an entire nation's economy is driven by economy, money. But economy has got nothing to do with economics. Oh, sorry, economics has nothing to do with real economy. It's the other way around, yeah? When we talk about a country's economy, we're talking about a country's economics. And that has very, very little to do with economy of either thinking, of producing, of living. And when you start thinking about the things that really matter in life, they have very, very little to do with money. So the problem with architectural education, not just in Malaysia, but around the world, is that they're educating us to help 
the biggest businessmen in the world designed the most wonderful objects. The Apple, new Apple campus headquarters in, in Cupertino, the, the, the new um, um, Amazon building, uh, uh, rainforest building in Seattle, the new, the tallest buildings in Jeddah or in Dubai. The, the question is, what kind of an architect do you want to become? What kind of an architect do you choose to be? There are many, many different kinds of architects. Look at Kerry Hill before he passed away. He's a very good example. He focused on hospitality architecture the, more than the first half of his entire life. He cut his teeth on doing some of the most amazing hotels in Bali. Because one of his first projects was the Bali Hyatt in, 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 uh, in uh, not Kuta. I think it was Kuta, yes. Just outside Kuta, Legian, I think. And, and after that, he started his own practice, designing some of the greatest hotels, the Aman Hotels, some of the most luxurious, beautiful hotels in the world, because that's how you begin to build a brand. That's how you begin to market yourself, by associating yourself with one kind, particular kind of architecture that the richest people in the world can identify you with. Yeah. And then he started moving on to houses for incredibly rich people, mostly the clients of the uh, uh, developers. Uh, um, um, I'm sorry, the owners that, the, that own those development companies or the clients of those developers, you know. And in his winter years, he went through a purple patch. Now, what is a purple patch? It's a time when you start really discovering what really matters to you and this rediscovering your ability and passion. He started doing a variety, a huge variety of projects. He started doing uh, 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 low-income housing. He started doing institutional projects, museums and schools and institutions. So you have to ask yourself and you will come to it at different times in your life. Kerry Hill came to that point only in his uh, uh, late 50s and early 60s. Some architects never came to that point. Uh, um, if you look at, uh, um, and I don't want to talk about really large commercial firms like Woha, because uh, um, it's very difficult to find your way in a firm like that. They govern how the hours run, and they're governed by a lot of uh, uh, the country's economics. Yeah, But I want to talk about you as individuals, the kind of path you want to trod, the kind of projects you want to really put your life into as a means of understanding what value means. You know, And you have to ask yourself the question. And when you can answer it, you can then say, I want to be a commercial architect. I want to be a businessman architect, take as many jobs as I can, build as big a firm as possible so that I can treat my family to five-star holidays anytime I want. And I want to buy anything in the world that I choose to at any time of my life. Good clothes, a Ferrari, a, a lovely uh, a sailing boat, whatever you want. And then don't talk about design because it's very, very, it's impossible to mix critical architecture with commercial architecture. It's very difficult. You can make a building look beautiful, but that's not critical architecture. Critical architecture is when you question what a typology is, what an architecture actually is, not just something you throw plants all over, not just something that satisfies some green building index requirements, not something that looks really good and so powerful because I powerfully iconic because it looks unlike anything you've ever seen before, but something that actually changes the human condition. Now, what do I mean by what something that changes the human condition? Let's ask the question. Would you design that drain any differently if you knew your mother was cleaning it or that toilet? Because you know someone's parent is cleaning it or someone's relative is cleaning it. 
These are the questions we should ask ourselves. In Singapore, the biggest user of the apartments in Singapore are not the owners and not the owners' children or relatives. Yeah, The biggest users of all the high-rise apartments in Singapore are the maids. They are there 24-7, six days a week, and they are allowed one day off every Sunday. How many people have designed an apartment equally for a maid as they do for the residents? Do we ever think about architecture in that way that transforms what it can be from the inside out, not from the outside in? Because the moment it's from the outside in, you're more interested in looks, aren't you? And this is one of the most important lessons, is that when you start thinking about architecture transformationally, you start realizing how all our old iconic heroes, all all the gods of architecture may not have actually been the best guides. Look at Liu Khan. He was the one who taught us about layering. He taught us about servant and serve spaces. And in doing so, helped us organize our architecture formally in a more powerful way, right? But think about it. The moment you call a space a servant space, you will design it as such. And go study anyone or all of Khan's buildings. Study his servant spaces. And you'll realize all of them have way less access to natural daylight, way less access to natural ventilation, way access to all those wonderful things real human beings are all given because real human beings are the actual users we have been taught to believe. That is a wrong way of education. If we as architects believe that architecture is about tearing down walls and boundaries between human beings and changing the human condition. So by default, Lou Kahn, one of the greatest architects of, of American history, gave us a very, very rather twisted example to follow by calling spaces servant spaces and serve spaces. We think of them that way too. And he designed that way too. Now look at another architect, Frank Lloyd Wright, one of the greatest, never mind America, he's one of the most heralded architects in the world, yes? And what do they call him? What does William Curtis one of the most respected architectural historians called this work organic architecture. Why? Because it speaks of an entirely new relationship between man and nature. Now, is that true? Go study his most famous project, Falling Water. It created a new relationship between man and nature, William Curtis wrote. Now, what exactly is that relationship? About horizontality, the fact you can see through it, the fact that he exposed a bit of the boulder that sat on the edge of Bear, Bear Run, the, the, the stream that's built over, and that you can see through the building, which is very horizontal, contrasted with the uh, 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 what trees are the birch trees, which are vertical. Now, is that the kind of a relationship that redefines what human beings have with nature? Now, look at it a different way. He built this huge cantilever over the stream. He didn't build it on the side. He built it over the stream. Now, what happens when you put an umbrella over your head? You feel cooler, don't you? You don't get the sunlight. What happens to grass that grows under a tree? It doesn't really grow, does it? Shade stops anything from growing underneath of it. What Frank Lloyd Wright did was he put a huge shade that would never be changed. It's not like a cloud. It's a permanent concrete cloud that he put over part of a living stream. 
what do you suppose lives under that stream now? Nothing. Life cannot grow in shadow. Now, is that a correct kind of relationship you want to forge between man and nature? But we don't ask these questions because it involves too much thinking. It involves criticizing uh, an architect that we already uh, iconize and we look at as a god. We look towards the architectural critics like William Curtis, who have wrote wonderful, written wonderful things about, about these uh, architects. Who are we to question these people? But you see, the moment you start digging deeper through either reading more, thinking more critically about what you read, thinking more critically about what you see and what you're spoon-fed by your teachers and by most especially social media networks, you dull your mind into accepting whatever it is that is there. Because if it's on the front page of a book, it must be true. It isn't. And the more you read, the more you'll be able to tell apart the good critical books from the books that merely brand and iconize architects and other human beings. So flush your mind of all the Frank Lloyd Wrights, Lucans, Le Cabouzes, Elon Musk's, Steve Jobs of the world, Warren Buffett's of the world, and start taking on the mantle of leading yourself on a path no one has been before. Because like I said in, 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 in some time before, you do not know if you can lead until you choose not to follow. I hope that's comprehensive enough. Yeah. Nice. There's, um, you know, um, choose your path. Um, be the leader that you are. I mean, choose your path and until you cannot follow anymore. So um, we have some more time. And I I get your points. And I, I, I'm sure the listeners are getting much of it and it goes back to the the poison or the the negative aspects of social media is there anything positive about the social media kevin it is only positive i think if you use it very very infrequently and only to draw true awareness to problems not in showing off your wonderful solutions and your amazing creativity it is a very good resource, provided you have many, many followers, to reach people who may not be aware of the truth. Yeah. yeah? But I cannot think of any other positive uh, uh, outcome of social media other than that. Yeah, to draw awareness to the problems. To problems, not to solutions. Not to show everyone a new way of doing something. That's not what it's about. Because you, if you are presented with a solution, you can only follow it. It's a solution. When you're presented with a problem, you have to uncover your own solution to it. By default, you have to become a leader. You can't follow something which isn't, you don't want to follow problems. So if a problem is presented to you, you have to figure out your own solution. You become a leader by default. That's why it's always good to engage things as problems, not as solutions. You said Otherwise, you just follow the rest of your life. Yeah. You said earlier about being critical and you said earlier about uh, be a leader, even though you're part of the industry, you're not necessarily going to be the owner of the company. Or Nas, you know, yeah. sorry, Nas, can I get you to stop for a moment? Yeah, sorry. Sorry, can you just stop recording? I need to 